we don't generally kind of, uh, you know, go with whole themes of Mother's Day, Father's Day, and all that, unless it works, because we really are just following a set of scripture. But I really feel compelled to tell you a story of, about when I was a little boy growing up in Orlando. And we'll see how this all kind of relates, but um, it was probably 1967, maybe 68. I was probably six, seven years old or so. And uh, growing up in Orlando was very different than what it is now. In fact, uh, you guys are from Orlando right now, right? And back where you're at, UCF, man, there's nothing. There was nothing out there. Wondering why they even built a college that far out in the middle of nowhere. And now it's not quite there. But growing up in Orlando, there were just a few neighborhoods. Um, there weren't many neighborhoods at all. And these little neighborhoods were built in the middle of orange groves. And they were kind of connected by even dirt roads that are now major highways. And um, now there's interstates running all over to them and through them and all of that. So growing up, man, we were, we were growing up in the middle of orange groves. And, and we could go ride our bikes out in the woods and find numerous sp beautiful spring-fed lakes that were crystal clear and have all the fishing we wanted, all the swimming, all the stuff. That's just kind of how we grew up there. And so you can imagine we made a lot of our own fun. And so one of the things we like to do at night, all right, as kids, now, this was unbeknownst to our parents, so don't think we had bad moms and dads, but we were creative, and I was an instigator, and so what we would do is, um, since there were oranges everywhere, we would kind of tell our parents we're playing tree tag, or we'd be playing, you know, a hide-and-go-seek or something like that. And literally what we were doing is we were all getting bags full of grocery bags. Y'all remember paper or paper bags, right? And we, we get paper bags full of rotten oranges. Now, um, you know, not too rotten, but not just rotten enough, not green. And we would have these bags full of oranges. And what we would do is we'd go hide in different places through the neighborhood. There'd probably be about 10, 15 of us kids. And when cars went by, we would pelt the cars with oranges. That was what we did growing up, Bill. You know, can you imagine when your little classic cars going by? Bam! And we got good. We had really good baseball teams, by the way, because we grew up doing this. And, and if you can imagine back in that day, most people didn't, nobody had air conditioning in their car, so their windows were down. So it was extra points if you had an extra rotten orange and you hit somebody in the side of the head with it. Now, again, we're little kids. We did not understand the repercussions that I now understand. And fortunately, we didn't have lawyers and logistic, or, or uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, all the lawsuits, and, and we didn't live in that world. You know, maybe that's why Morgan and Morgan, and uh, they got started in Orlando, because the kids throwing oranges. I don't know. But, dude, that's what we did, man. We would be hiding out, and the cars, boom, and you'd hit a car, and you'd hear the infamous, it was no greater sound than, God, hitting the side of a door on a car. And back then, dude, they made them out of real metal, didn't they, Carl? Not this tin we have now. Now, dude, it'd probably go through it, right? It would bounce off literally and not even hardly cause a dent that we saw. <laughs> it was dark, though. And, uh, and, and so what would happen when the guy got his car hit with the orange or the guy got hit in the head with a, with a rotten orange? What do you think he did? What was the next thing we heard after we heard a thud? We heard, Arr! and we were like, yes! And we all scattered like cockroaches running through the neighborhood. So the people, the guy would get out, and it was always a guy. I don't even know why, but it was always a guy. He'd get out, slam it. He'd say some choice words about kids, and he would take off running. But he would see kids running everywhere. And so if you were the one he was chasing, oh, my goodness, now it was you were up. 
You, you could climb neighbors' trees. We didn't have fences. We could get on top of roofs and taunt them and go from roof to roof. I mean, back then, nobody was worrying about getting sued, dude. In fact, you didn't want to be known as the kid who couldn't jump on a roof and jump to another roof or climb a tree. You wouldn't sue somebody for that. That'd be an embarrassment of your parenting skills, all right? But so we would run, and that was half the battle was the chase. And we had fun doing this, all right? Now, again, we never told our parents. And I don't know if our parents really ever knew, but this is what we did growing up. We threw oranges at cars. So that was our pastime, and we took off running, and that was fun getting chased. And, oh, man, the stories. You ever want to? I can just tell you hours of orange-throwing story chases, man. Phenomenal chases. Man, Billy Robinson hiding in a shed, and the dude ripping everything out of the shed. And before he gets to the back of the lawnmower, the last one, he takes off, and there's Billy, man. He's our hero for that one. But... One day, listen, man, one day, it was about 9 o'clock in the morning in July, and we had cutoffs. How many of y'all know what cutoffs are? Right? There were no such thing as hemlong pants, all right? There's one that kind of, uh, you know, waste in our economy back then. You know, if you had long pants and you outgrew them, you know, which didn't happen too often with me vertically, but uh, <laughs> mom would cut them off, and you had cutoffs, and she would send you out in a pair of cutoffs, no shirt, no shoes, no nothing, and so you go out in the day. So it's about 9 o'clock, I'm over Billy Robinson's house, middle July, it's almost 100 degrees by then in Orlando, no breeze like there is here, and, and we're like, well, there's nothing to do, we're in, you know, over Billy's trying to figure out what we were going to do until, you know, we could throw orange at cars at night, all right, but it was daytime. His mom called us over. And his mom says, uh, she says, Billy, come on over here. They're from Kentucky, actually. All right. They, they were from Kentucky, all right. And not saying anything about that. They did let their kids, they did let their kids drink beer, but I'm just saying. But anyways, the other one's for Texas, Georgia, and so on. But anyways, um, so so B Billy and I come out, and his mom's over on the porch. And his mom's got this big old freezer. Now, how many of y'all remember defrosting a freezer? Anybody remember defrost? Yeah, and literally there'd be frost on the freezer and they had this special little tool and his mom had done the job that she didn't want to do. She scraped all the frost off and she told Billy and I, there it was, there was a cooler, one of those styrofoam coolers packed overflowing with snow, with frost that she had taken and she said, you boys get this out of here. And we said, yes ma'am, as we looked at each other. We didn't know what we were going to do with it. We're Florida boys. We had never even seen snow. <laughs> I didn't see snow until I was in my 30s. And here's this big tub of snow. It looked like snow to me. And so Billy and I grab it, and we start going, what are we going to do with this? Now, across the street from Billy's house and next to mine was the Capabianco's house. And Vinnie Capabianco, I don't know, they moved or something, and so the house was abandoned. But they had this thing in their carport. They had these little steps that went up to a little porch that went to the front door, and there was a wall in front of it, a wall that ran parallel to the road. And the road was from here to the back window, so that was an easy throw. So I don't know what it was. It just led us like a magnet, man, up there to that. And Billy and I are sitting there looking at this snow. What are we going to do? And we start playing with it. And it was like our hands just willingly made them into these snowballs. And we started saying, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And, and because snowballs weren't going to make it that far, we had to pack them really good, and I think those are called ice balls. And so it's the middle of July, 9 o'clock, 9.30 probably by now in the morning. We had a whole cooler full of snow, and we're going, and I'm, Billy, here comes the car. He looks at me, he says, you're not. And I grab it, and I, bam! And I nail the car with this ice ball. Only this time, instead of running, 
I don't know what it was. I, I'm not that smart to think that far ahead, but it worked out. I, I hit the guy with a snowball in Orlando on a July morning, about 100 degrees, and I stopped. The guy's like, hey! And he said, he said he, you know, he must have been hit by one of our oranges because he thought I was going to run. He said, what are you doing? I said, he said, did you throw that snowball? I'm like, you know, didn't say anything. And he comes up, and I let him catch me. Uh, this time I didn't run. It wasn't in the chase. There was something more exciting getting ready to happen. And, and I remember him grabbing me by the back of my neck, and he's like, where do you live at? And normally I would have lied and told him Billy's house, and Billy would have got a whooping and not me. But this time I'm like, I live right over here. And so the dude walks me, and Billy's following. Billy wasn't the sharpest marble in the box, but Billy was following. And, and the dude knocks on my door. My mom opens the door and says, hey, what are you doing? And she grabs me and brings me in. And the guy said, your son was throwing snowballs at my car. <laughs> my mom slammed the door <laughs> in the guy's face, and he walked off. And she looked at me, and she said, I don't know how, but I know you did. <laughs> and I don't want to know anymore. <laughs> so what we're talking about today, I, I, I felt compelled to tell this story, and maybe you've got an application for it. But the application I'd have to say, as best it goes with this message here, is that in a world full of... Lies. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> that guy, I mean, lies, what makes sense? What did my mom originate? My mom didn't know me so well. How many of y'all know your kids? And you know things are they're capable of stuff that just makes absolutely no sense? You know, we, don't, we live in an upside-down world. We don't know what's the truth. We don't know what's lies, whether it's the media, it's politics, it's business, it's us talking to each other, whether it's just even our minds. How many of y'all have your flesh lie to you? Through feelings, you know what you're feeling is not right, and our flesh lies to us. We have a world system trying to tell us how to do things that's not God's world system. And, and it's going totally against God, and the world system says, you want to succeed, you've got to do it this way. And we have Satan, the deceiver of all deceivers, uh, as a third enemy that's lying to us. We live in a world full of lies, and in a world full of lies where we have the only truth. Do you believe you have the only truth? Do you believe what you read in the word of God is the truth? Do you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no one can come to him except through the Father? Do you believe it's that exclusive? Do you believe that is the sole truth? Nothing but the truth. Dustin, do you believe that? Yeah. So in a world full of lies where we have the only truth that there is, we should be compelled to spread the truth. And that's where Paul finds himself. You remember last week, Paul, they have another church planted in Thessalonica, man. They're, everything's going great. Some Judaizers come and want to kill Paul, want to throw him, want to do something. The people, uh, basically, they, they took Paul and they shipped him to Athens, Greece. And they left Silas and Timothy behind. Paul did originally. They just wanted to get Paul out of the way. And we're going to find out that Paul then, as soon as he gets where he's, get, where he's getting in Greece, he sends word to get Timothy and Silas back again with him, okay? But Paul's there, and, and we're, that's where we pick up in verse 16. And in verse 16, check this out. It says that as basically, whoop, verse 16. Oh, did I turn this off? Come on. All right, someone's going to have to stand there and help me out with that one. This thing is not working today. Okay, it was a minute ago. I must have done something to it. Oh, here we go. All right. Next verse. Next, next. 
Verse 16. Yep, there it is. While Paul, let me see if this is going to work. So you have to, okay, you don't have to sit there anymore. I think it's going to work now. It just went to sleep or something. It's a different computer we usually use. We're good. All right. It's a secret setting Seth has, so nobody can hack his computer while we're there. All right. So don't try, all right? It's on camera. Well, it won't be on camera, but all right. So while Paul, here he is in Athens, Greece, all right? It says, while Paul was waiting for them, he's waiting for, he sent word back. He wants Timothy and Silas to come join him because they already planted another church in Thessalonica. They've got people behind that are that are doing the work of the church, and they've encouraged them. And so now he sees the potential, or he sees they're supposed to keep going together. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, look at this. He was what? Greatly distressed. It wasn't like he was ticked off. It wasn't like he was just kind of like, oh, well, man. It wasn't like he was just gossiping with people, oh, whatever. He was distressed. This brought him great anguish. He was upset inside to see that the city was full of what? And idols are lies. It's a lie. It's something somebody has been convinced to worship in place of the one true God. An idol could be a job. It could be a relationship with a person. An idol could be this silver bucket right here that we make into a God. This is the God of the offering. Boy, don't tell me we don't do that in churches sometimes, all right? So what I'm saying is it could be the, the guitar, your new hobby. An idol could be anything, but why an idol is always a lie. It's something that you're using to replace of the one true living God. And in this, this was so full of all kinds of gods that they had. In fact, I'm going to explain in a minute. There's two groups that fight against them pretty hard in this, or basically the philosophers that... Um, he was talking with in there. There were Epicureans and there were Stoics. And the Epicureans were there to enjoy life. The Stoics were there to endure life. And this is the simplest way to put it. Epicureans were like, dude, there are no gods. There, if there are, they're so impersonal. They don't have anything to do with human beings. They don't care what we're doing. Epicurean is go for the gusto, man. Eat whatever foods you want. Have whatever parties you want. Do whatever you want to do, period, because nobody cares, and all there is is what I get to pull out of this life here. Anybody know anybody who's an Epicurean? <laughs> Are you an Epicurean? Don't raise your hand. Seriously, though, that's a, fa that's a phase of life. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters because whatever I make out of this life, this is all there is. And that drove Paul nuts. These guys were mostly... Um, atheists, they didn't even believe in a God. What good would a God do for an Epicurean? You know, I've already made my own gods. I've got food. And you know, my own appetite is my God. They didn't have, a, a, they didn't need a God. They didn't believe in eternal life, really. Anything after this, it was all about here and now. The Stoics on the other side, they were enduring life. They were very legalistic. They made everything a God. Oh, you know, this cup right here, I better worship this cup i better offer and sacrifice because if it's a god and i don't please it it may curse me it may do something good so they're constantly going around making everything a god so just in case it really is a god it they don't tick the god off right and so they're very legalistic they were they were very stringent you know they were very disciplined in their behavior you know they're very stoic if you will <laughs> and, and, and in other words they they live by a certain standard and if they found a new rule they added that rule to it and so it was all about their own performance right now and how they were going to do things and they really didn't believe in an eternal life they so their god was now their discipline their pride was their god 
as opposed to their appetite. And so, again, you got the, the Epicureans who were going to enjoy life. That's all it was about. Nothing after this. The Stoics were going to endure life, man. No matter what it is, we're not going to let the gods curse us. And they had more gods. They said it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was a person. Somebody kind of joked around and said that at one time. So Paul's looking at these people, and they're supposed to be the thinkers. They're supposed to be the wisest people. Now, you can do studies on both Epicurean and Stoicism. I've been studying both those, trying to come up with the best synopsis I can for it. And it's nuts, but Paul's sitting there looking at these guys like, you're investing all, they're sitting around the market talking about all this stuff. They're, they're talking about this philosophy and this philosophy. They're coming up with new things, and they think they're geniuses. They think that they've got the corner on the market, and Paul's like, no. He's greatly distressed to see that the city was full of lies. All these things that they were trying to bring into their life, that they were trying to do to satisfy their life right now, and none of them had a concept on eternal life. So most, both of those groups thought that you kind of disintegrated afterwards, so you better make the most of it now. And now there might have been some Stoics and some Epicureans that had some form of eternal. Obviously, everything kind of expands. But for the most part, it was all about now. Either being super disciplined and making sure you make all the right decisions and worship all the right gods because everything is a god. Or basically just go for the gusto and take whatever you want. And Paul, man, he was distressed. How many of y'all know we live in a world full of lies right now? Do you see lies even more? How many of y'all see these two lies? Everybody's saying, okay, if we do this for our kid, we do this, 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 then they hit this stage, we do this, 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 now they're sort of on their own, and we do this, 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 now we do this, now, and, and, then, and, 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 and now as an adult, we do this, we do this, and, and, and if we do all these things that the American Dream and Society says, everything's going to be awesome. Anybody heard that? It's what they teach us in school, and I'm not saying it's bad to make plans, I'm not saying it's bad to be disciplined. But if your life is consumed like a stoic with making your path on this planet succeed and God has no part in it, it's a lie. It's an idol, no matter how disciplined or how religious it seems to be. By the same token, I'm retired. I've busted my tail as a stoic my whole life. Now I'm an Epicurean. I'm retired. <laughs> That's probably a good way of describing Epicurean, isn't it? Let's go out to eat. Let's go do this. Let's go here. Let's go, you know. And if your life is now all about, I've earned this. My life is now about, let's just enjoy life. Well, I'm sorry you didn't enjoy it while you were working, if that's you. You should have. <laughs> you should enjoy every minute because if you see it from God's perspective. But if you're either an Epicurean or a Stoic, man, it's a lie. Our life is about God. We have our home. Where, Karen? It's in heaven. That's our home. And that's guaranteed. And in a very short period of time, for some of you, I'm looking at you, and it's shorter than others. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know when it's coming, do we? <laughs> we don't know. The youngest one here could be the next one. We don't know. It's all up to God and all of that. But the point is, is we have a short period of time to be on God's clock compared to eternity. And we're supposed to be investing this life for him. Whatever that requires, whatever he puts across our path, we see it from his perspective. Wherever he chooses to put the lampstand, we shine. So that's what Paul, that was his view. To live is what for Paul? To live is Christ. Christ. 
Whatever Christ wants. Dude, I just got beat. They left me for dead. They did this. Now I just got shipped across. Life is exciting. I just stole with sharks. Now it's like, what? It, life's exciting. He's looking at all these things God keeps doing. And so he's here seeing these people trying to make the most out of this life, and they have no concept of eternal life. Seriously? Anybody want to count these 100 grains of sand I just pulled off the bottom of my foot? <laughs> or you just want to trust me on that? 100 grains of sand, that's 100 years of life. That's not even close to all the other grains of sand in the universe if those represented a year of life. Eternity is not even represented by all the other grains. And yet, if all we're concerned about is here, we're either Epi Epicureans or we're Stoics. And Paul's looking at it going, no. To live is Christ. In fact, he told his congregation, I've kind of been to heaven, and it's a pretty cool place. And, you know, I would really rather be there, but since I'm not there, that means God needs me to be here with you. So would you hurry up and get what God has for me to give you so I can go to heaven? That's the dude who saw heaven. That's where he's coming from in this. So Paul, he was greatly distressed, not because of the, how ludicrous all the lies were, but the one big lie that everybody was making life about this life and not the next. And in and, and this life, they were getting it wrong. If you're going to put that much effort into this life, get it right. Serve Christ. Build up rewards. Invest in eternity. So he goes on. He reasoned. So what did Paul do? Hey, where did Paul preach? Anybody know where Paul preached? Everywhere. Okay, everywhere's a good answer. Everywhere the what? Everywhere he could get a crowd. <laughs> it didn't matter. Paul didn't need a building. He didn't need a location. He didn't need a sound system. Paul, did. Paul preached anywhere he could get a crowd. Anywhere. Jail. Out on a dive boat. They didn't know they were going diving, though, Terry. It was a shipwreck. <laughs> and they weren't really prepared for it. But pre he preached anywhere he had a crowd, which is what our example is. So here he's in Athens. He's got all these people focused on this life one, at two extremes. He said, so he reasoned first in the synagogue with the Jews. Okay, These guys had the Old Testament, so he could take the Old Testament, as we've seen his, 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 his uh, character doing, and he could explain it to them from a New Testament perspective and show them that anywhere you cut the Bible, it bleeds because it's about Christ. And he could show us all a picture of what Christ would do. And the God-fearing Greeks who already said the Greek theology is messed up. I want to go to something more real. And they became Jews. So he went to those people in the synagogue and started telling them how the Old Testament was really a picture of what Christ had already done. And how they could have salvation in the resurrection of Christ. As well as where? In the marketplace. How often did he do this? Gary, how often did he do this? I'm just making sure. You got your glasses on. I just make sure lights were on. Nobody was home, bro. All right. We got it day by day because you're good at staying still, man, right there. Right. In the marketplace, day by day with those. Who did he preach to? Yeah, look at that. Those who happen to be there. Wow. That's our mission right there. It, with the people, we come across people who have some theology, have some spiritual desire. Isn't it awesome to talk with other believers and be encouraged with other believers when we encourage ourselves about the things we have in God and about the resurrection in our home? And Isn't that awesome? And then there's people that maybe they've got some religion, maybe they need a little more, and, and we get to share with them what we know and what we've experienced. That, that's being a witness. But also, day by day, there it is. You could put Publix in there or Walmart. 
or Target or wherever you like to shop. You can put that in there. The pawn shop. That's me, bro. All right? You know, you get good deals there, all right? I'm just saying, the marketplace, that's where we live. That's where we walk. That's where we deal in life. And look what Paul said day by day. He was reasoning with these folks that there's more to life than what is right here and here and now. Don't live for here. <laughs> Dude, you've heard the old axiom, the old, the old saying that there's no U-Hauls following a hearse, right? You know? You can't take it with you. The Egyptians tried and it's still there. We found it. It's in their pyramids. It didn't go. As well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who, with anyone who happened to be there. So again, if we live in a world so full of lies, we should be compelled to tell the truth. Seriously, when somebody dies right now without Christ, where do they go? Hell. And where, how long do they spend there? Forever. There's no purgatory. There's no do-over. You, you either die and you go to heaven or you die and go to hell. And it's a joyous thing when we get to go to heaven. Oh, good. I didn't knock the battery off. And uh, I was looking for it. I can't see it. So, so again, anyone that happened by there, he was compelled to tell them the truth because he saw they were believing a lie. How many of the people were influenced by the philosophers there? By the major philosophers? There's a big major philosopher here and he's talking about Stoicism. Uh, talking about Stoicism and he's talking, there's another one talking about Epicureanism. Man, people, a lot of people are just, how many of y'all are followers? You know by your nature you're a follower and not a leader? That's not a shameful thing. In fact, most of you should be raising your hand that you're followers, but you're telling me you're introverted followers now. <laughs> how many of y'all are followers? How many of y'all know you're followers? Yeah. The majority of you kind of are. And there's only certain people called to be leaders. And he said, when you're called to be a leader, be careful because you're going to be held accountable. That's how you lead people. But he puts a lot more followers in the world than leaders. And so, so many of these people were being misled. And they were following an idol. They were following a lie. And Paul had the truth, so he felt compelled to tell them the truth. All right? So here's what we said again. In a world full of lies, we should be compelled to spread the truth. The truth. Spread the what, Sam? Do we, all, do we spread things other than the truth? Yeah, we spread a lot of junk, don't we? <laughs> but we need to spread the truth. That's what we've been left here to do. So the truth is who? So do you need to have a complicated message? No. Are you the one responsible? Are you a lawyer or are you a witness? Are you a lawyer having to present a case to people and win a case and convince them that Christianity is the way to go and Jesus is the same? Are you, is that what your job is? No, you're a witness. You just simply live it and share with people what God is doing in your life. That's simply what a witness is. And the truth is Jesus. That's all you got to know about is Jesus. Now, you can know more, but be sure you know not about Jesus, but you know Jesus. Look at this. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, okay, so these are the guys I already told you about, they began to debate with him. Oh, no, the Epicureans, it's not about eternal life. It's about right now, and God wants all of this. All the, if there is a God, that's what he wants, and in fact, God doesn't even care. He's not involved in this, and he's made it possible for us to have all these awesome things and nothing bad around us. Boy, does that sound familiar? How about stoicism over here? No, it is by this disciplined set of rules that every one of these gods that we have made, the god of the flip-flop. How many of y'all growing up in Florida had a god of a flip-flop? You know what the god of flip-flop is? It's mom and dad reaching in the back seat. <laughs> Seriously, though, they're debating with them. No, you obey the rules. You reap what you sow, pal. Boom, you do this, 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 this. It's all going to work out, guaranteed. 
There's a little bit of truth in all of that there, but it's not the truth, and it's a big mistake if you make it all about right here, right now. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, all right, what is this babbler trying to say? This word babbler is kind of interesting. It means seed picker, all right? And what it meant is it was talking about like a farmer or a bird going and picking this seed, this seed, picking, picking little pieces from every kind of philosophy that there was and putting together his own philosophy, and he didn't make up any of it. And in fact, what was the most valuable thing if you were a philosopher in Greek Greece would be that you came up with some radical new idea that didn't include anybody else's idea. That made you really valuable, kind of like art, Ashley. You know, oh, well, that looks like Picasso, and, you know, no, no this is my own, <laughs> you know. A seed picker was somebody who just stole ideas from all kinds of other things and, came and just put it together. And that's what they're calling Paul, a junior philosopher, if you will. <laughs> Paul was no junior philosopher. He was trained by Gamaliel. Paul had the truth that he got from Jesus Christ. But they're like, who is this seed picker, this, this one that's just trying to sound important, this junior philosopher? He's not even in our league. <laughs> Little did he know they weren't in his league. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Look, we have this group, which you're going to mention in a minute, and, and I'm already telling you ahead of time, Aphrodite and Mia, I'm going to butcher this, this Greek word and counting on you to help me with it. I'm going to make it sound as Greek as I can, and I'm going to own it, but you're going to help me with it, right? All right, but they, were, they had a council of what they approved as Greek gods, okay? And he said, he seems to be advocating a different god. Well, he was, <laughs> and his god's the truth, Okay? Look what they said. This is, could there be no greater compliment about your preaching, of your teaching, as your discipleship, and helping anyone? Could there be no greater compliment than this? They said this because Paul was preaching, and that word means proclaiming. He was talking about the what? The good news. And the good news is that you, when you come into this world, you are full of sin, and you have already earned a death penalty. The wages of sin is eternal death and separation from God. You have already earned. You're condemned already. You, have, you are on death row the minute you're born. Or age of accountability, whatever you want to say on all that. But the, at some point, man, you're on death row. And the good news is that Jesus comes through somebody telling you this, that Jesus wants to offer you a pardon and get you off of death row. If you were on death row, would it not be a good, would that not be good news? Would that not be good news? Rich bro, if, if you're on death row and all of a sudden someone says, hey, here's a free pardon, free and clear to get off of death row, is that not good news? That's great news. That's what the gospel is. He said, this is good news. And so he was preaching the good news about who? And that's the good news. You're free from the death penalty that you've earned. Jesus has given you a pardon. And it's Jesus and the power of the what? Right. So how much of this you got to know to share the gospel? That. that right there. It's good news. You have a death penalty. You've already been assigned a death penalty because you brought you have sin. You've inherited it. How many of y'all had to learn to sin? Rob, did, he, did your mama take you through lying 101 and stealing 202? And now you're going to advance like 405 towards about cheating the government with taxes. And, you know, we do learn these things from our parents, don't we? I'm just joking. No, I'm not. But <laughs> literally, not your parents. I'm just picking on you. But, but literally, do we have to learn how to sin? No, it's natural standard equipment, and we brought it into this world because we inherited it from Adam, and we have a death sentence. And Jesus, the good news is you don't have to die spiritually. 
you don't have to pay the consequences of that death penalty if you accept what he did on the cross to pay for you. He has pardoned you. And how long has he pardoned you for, Bob? Eternally. Eternally. No one can take that pardon away from you ever. You don't get out and then one day somebody else says, oh, no, you know what, that pardon doesn't count anymore. It's eternal. That's the good news. And it, he was raised. It, it was, it's all being done through the power of the resurrection. So there it is, man. What a great compliment. This guy was preaching Jesus. You could have no greater compliment said about you in the world where you live. So the truth is, it's Jesus. But here's kind of their problem. They thought salvation went from their head to their heart. And I'm telling you right now, salvation doesn't go from your head to your heart. There's times where we, how many of y'all think that we can figure things out and then you're like, oh, now I'll trust it. That's kind of the way I was with the shark dive, Terry. I was like, I'm going to let Terry go first, and I'm going to try to save some money, and I'm going to see what happens to him, and I'm going to figure it all out first, and then once I know it's safe and everything's cool, then I'm going to go. How many of y'all approach it like that way? And that's, that's kind of wise, okay? But you can't do so, because you got to have a friend like Terry that just goes for it, right? <laughs> when we go wading fishing, we always bring somebody tall so we can see how deep that little trough is and see if it's worth swimming across, right? There's, but, but literally, seriously, salvation's not one of those things. You can't figure it out in your head enough where you're going to believe it in your heart. Because then it wouldn't require, what's the F word? Faith. Yeah. And we're saved by faith. God gives us grace to give us faith to save us. If you're waiting till you figure God out, it ain't going to happen. He, his thoughts are way higher than our thoughts. If God gives you a little tiny seed of faith, he says if you use it, what happens? If you use the faith he gives you, you get more. If you don't use it, what happens? You lose it. If you don't use the faith he gives you, you lose it. But if you use it, you get more. That's what we learned in the Gospel of Mark. So salvation doesn't go from your head to your heart. And that's who he's dealing with with these folks. Look at this. Then when they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, <laughs> it sounds like a snuffleupagus. Is that almost right, Areopagus? Almost. Well, I'm, you let me have my Areopagus, and we'll, we'll talk about it later. But, but the, what this place was, this was like the official place where the philosophers all met, okay? These are all the head philosophers that were going to tell you whether the philosophy was okay or not. So they brought him to this official meeting of the Areopagus, Areopagus, where they said to him, and, and they're not like trying to, you know, it's not like a court of law where they're trying to beat him up or they're trying to, you know, be negative. They, they were interested in new things. In fact, over in the Stoicism, they were like, dude, if there's another God, we better figure out who this is and not take him off so we can make more rules to follow that God and we can have our light or all our ducks in a row. <laughs> That's probably a good way to describe Stoics. And so they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? And they really wanted to know. And you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. Hey, what would be strange to their ears when they're talking? He's talking to two groups that make life completely about here on this planet. And he's talking about a resurrection. What would be strange to their ears? Yeah. Why would a God die and then be raised again? And, and you have eternal afterlife. It's all about here. Why would you need any of that? So there's the strange ideas that's being brought to their ears. We would like to know what they mean. Try to explain this. It's got, if I can't understand it in my head and we can't explain it to each other as a bunch of high-level philosophers, and you're just a junior-level philosopher, and we can't understand it, then you know what? It probably isn't right. 
because we're smarter than you guys. We're smarter than anybody, and if, and if we can't figure it out, then it's got to be wrong. Because everybody knows it goes from your head to your heart is what they're saying. Oh, so look at this. All, look at this. <laughs> All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, what did they spend their time doing? He said they spent their time doing nothing but, all right, so they did nothing but this. What did they do? Talking about and listening to the what? Man, they must have stayed home and watched daytime TV all day long. Because, because now it's Oprah and Jerry and Phil and, you know, those are the new Socrates and Plato and Aristotle's, you know, that everybody's getting fed on, right? I'm just saying, all right? And, and, and if we're in different environments, you're hearing different things. But here's what he's saying. He's saying all these people, that's all they did. That was the highest form of life. You had slaves. You had people that would do the physical work. And if you were up there, you were smart enough to have all that done, then you were one of the people that would just sit around and philosophically talk about all these things. Hey, doesn't that sound like seminary sometimes? Yeah, that's why we got to apply it, man. You have the most giant stick of deodorant in the world, but if you don't stick it under your arms, you stink. And so, so man, here, here it is. They're just talking about it. They're ta Does it even say that they're practicing it? No, they're talking about it. That's all they do. And, and they feel accomplished because they've talked about these quote-unquote spiritual things. But nothing has changed in their life. Why? Because their gods are a lie, and their gods can't change anything for the better. And it's their flesh and the world system and Satan that can change it for the worse. So all they did, I love how they says that. They spent their time doing, doing what? Nothing. <laughs> spent their time doing nothing. So if all you're doing is talking about and listening to the latest ideas, you're doing what? Nothing. nothing. When we've got the truth that's right here. So salvation doesn't go from your head to your heart. Salvation goes from your heart to your head. It goes the other direction. How many of you knew everything there was to know about Christ before you gave your life to him? Anyone? How many of y'all knew just a smidgen of what you know right now and what you've experienced? But it was enough where you put all your faith and trust in him after, uh, through what you did know. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. That's where faith comes in. So the world says, prove it to me, and then I'll believe in you. God says, no, no, believe in me, and then I'll prove it to you. So salvation goes from your heart to your head. God gives you enough where you say, okay, I'm going for it. I, I've got enough faith. I'm surrendering everything I know about myself to everything I know about you. And as you show me, I'm going to surrender that. And, I'm gonna sh and, and it doesn't mean we don't get things wrong. We get things wrong, we back up, we go back. In our life, we're not perfect. We just keep following him in faith, and he keeps using us as the lampstand until it's time to take us home, which is the most awesome thing in the world. How many of y'all think you're going to be ticked off when you get to heaven? Anybody think I'd be really like, oh, dude, I really wish I could have been here. <laughs> I mean, literally, you get to heaven, it's perfection, and you're going to be there forever. And how many of y'all get, as you get older, you get ticked off about change? I just got enough energy to figure out how to do this, and now they're changing it on me. You know, heaven, it never changes. It's beautiful. If it does, it's dynamically changing, I should say, as you are. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. So I hear, <laughs> right. salvation goes from your heart to your head. Check this out, verse 22. Paul stood up in the meeting of the, help us out, Mia, Areopagus, okay? I'll, I'll just, all right, so Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, 
Scopus, the, the dudes who are in charge of the philosophy of the day. And he said, people of Athens, I see in every way you are very what? Religious. Woo, and they're like, yes, I'm glad you see that we're religious. But was Paul using it as a compliment? No. Not at all. He's like, you're very religious. You have a God of Sophie's pen. You have a God of Sophie's notebook, a God of Sophie's shoes. You have a God of Bob's eye uh, case right there in his top front pocket. Yeah. What they did is they, if they were religious, they made a God out of everything. And the God could do nothing, but they made a God out of everything just so they could try to please that God. And then that God would hopefully be pleased with them and nothing would go wrong. Hey, when I was in Trinidad back in, man, probably like 95, early 90s, somewhere in the mid-90s, uh, I spent a lot of time in Trinidad, and I, I always go out in the countryside. I'm down in Rochard Road, down in Trinidad, very Indian area, and right across from the Rochard Road Worship Center, which I took numerous kids to and adults and stuff, was um, a place called Muni Lao's. And Muni Lao was a, uh, he was a Hindu priest, actually, and his wife was a priestess, and they had a haberdashery across the street, which a haberdashery is basically a little dime store. They had everything that you could probably want. And I learned how to make roti from her and all kinds of things. But, um, but I, I got to be close friends with them. And one day I was over there in the morning and they were right early on and, and they were over in the back side of their house. And I, I was knocking on the door looking and I saw them and they looked to be doing something kind of official and I interrupted them. And they were like, wait, wait, wait. And I, I, so I gave them time and then I went and talked with them after they were done, and I said, what are you guys doing? They said, oh, we're worshiping our God. I was like, really? Where, well, what God were you worshiping? Because I know Hindu is pantheistic. They got all kinds of gods, very much like the Stoicism thing. Only, only they do believe in eternal life and a sort of a way of reincarnation and all that other stuff. But so she's like, our God. And I said, well, show me what you're doing. And she takes me over to this little stone, and there's petals on it. A little stone, a little flat stone about this big. And there's petals on it, and there's little oils and things on it. And, and I said, so, so tell me about your God. She said, well, that's my God. I was like, the petals? And she's like, no. And she touches it, and I said, the rock? And she said, yes. She said, that's my God. That's my husband's God. That was our, 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 our grandparents' God, our great-parents' God. I'm like, that same stone? And she said, yes, that's our God. And I said, well, what are you worshiping it for? And she said, well, that's our God. And I'm like, okay, what are you hoping happens with this God and she said well we're worshiping it because we want it to grow and she's serious as a heart attack man she said we're worshiping it because we we, we want it to grow we believe it's going to grow and, and so I bet I was like well has it grown how big it how big was it when you guys started worshiping it she said oh it's been the same size and I was like but you guys have been worshiping this God, this rock for generations. And she's like, yeah. She said, but one day it's going to grow. Her faith was phenomenal. And, and if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny. But this is what she was counting on for eternal life of worshiping this God so that she could be found faithful and, be re and have a better life and be reincarnated into something more. But I started thinking if... She's that faithful with a lie. How much more faithful should I be with the truth? Amen. And she's got this rock. And literally, I'll never forget about that. But it doesn't matter if it's a rock or if it's a lie. Anything aside from Jesus Christ and his resurrection is a lie. It might as well be a rock. It can be your retirement pro program. But 
how many of you all know the economy could tank at any time? I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just saying your retirement program could be like that rock. You've got to be counting on the rock of Christ Jesus. You can count on these other things, but you've got to count on the rock of Christ Jesus and use all these resources the way he wants you to, which is awesome to watch you guys do. So Paul stood up in the, in the meeting and said, man, you guys are religious. And they're like, yes, we are. <laughs> and then he goes on, look what he says. He said, I walked around and I looked carefully at all your objects of work. I was amazed. You had a songbook God. You had a, a speaker God. You had a, 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 a neon light or a fluorescent light God. He's like, they had a God for everything. Again, one of the famous sayings was, that it, you could find a God quicker than you could find a person in that because everything was a God. And so they wouldn't tick off any of them. He said, man, I walked around. I was amazed at your objects of worship. And they're like, yeah, we know we're religious. That's kind of our benefit. That's what makes us smarter than everyone else. <laughs> and Paul's like, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. <laughs> now, one of the stories about the unknown God uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think I read it was 600 years prior to this, or it was, I don't know, it was a long time prior to this, that one of the people, because Greece wasn't in its heyday at this point. Rome was, and Greece was just kind of, so Athens was a former shell, a shell of its former self. And so back in its heyday, one of the things they did, one of the philosophers had a great idea of letting a bunch of sheep go all throughout the city. And wherever the sheep laid down, that was a god, and they would sacrifice that sheep to that god and name that God. And then there was a sheep laying by something. If they didn't know what it was, they now made that the unknown God. And they kept that tradition going, and that was one of the things here. But Paul uses it to his evangelistic advantage. So he goes, he says, I haven't found an altar with a description to an unknown God. So you are what? All of a sudden, they're thinking, we're just geniuses. Yep, we're the most religious. We got it all. We got the corner on the market. He said, no, you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't like cutting them down. He's just saying you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. In other words, what Paul says, you got names for all these gods, but there's an unknown God, and I'm going to tell you who he is. <laughs> Amen? Because I'm going to tell you who he is. He goes for, he, you look at this, the, the what? How many gods he talking about? How many gods did they have? He said there's one God. And look, in this verse right here is all, again, a synopsis of all you need to know about this. The truth. The God. The God. There's no other God. The God who made what? The world. So it wasn't this God, this God, this God. It wasn't even three gods in a trinity, you know, but separate gods. It was one God. In a trinity we don't understand, but the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as one God made this world. And what do they make? Everything in it. So all of their whole religion, he's saying there's one God. The God that you said is an unknown God, I know his name. I know who he is. He's the God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord, master of, uh, of everything. He's the boss, the Lord of what? Heaven and yeah, so you don't have to worship all these gods everywhere you are. Oop, there's the God of the speck on the floor. Oop, you know, you don't have to do that. Worship one God. He's the God who made the world and everything. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands because that's what they, they were famous for temples. Some of the most, Athens had the temple to Athena, I guess it was. And, and, and beautiful temples everywhere. 
He said, see these beautiful temples that you have built and spent all your effort and energy try, trying to earn favor with these false gods that are a lie and building? He said, he said, you don't have to do that. This God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Hey, let me ask you a question. When Paul's preaching this from that day even to right now, what is the temple that the, 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 this God who made the world and everything, where is the temple where he lives? Us. Do you understand that? The God who made the world and everything in it, who's Lord of heaven and earth, he lives in you if you're a believer. You're the temple. It's not built by human hands, man. He's, he's it. So he's just, he just corrected them. There's not all these gods. There's one. And that's the one I want to tell you. He's an unknown God, but by the time I'm done, I want you to know who he is so he's not the unknown God to you anymore. He is not served. Listen to this. He is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So who's serving who in this? Are we serving God or is God serving us? Look at that. How many of y'all are breathing right now? How many of y'all thought about taking the last breath you did? Rob, are you thinking about breathing? Like, I better breathe. I better breathe. Have you ever done that before? Yeah. <laughs> That's not a good thing. It's involved. He's doing that. He, he, look what it says. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. He's eternal. He himself gives everyone life. He gave you that last breath you didn't even think about. He gave your heart that last pump that you didn't even think about. He's doing so many things. He's serving us, giving everyone life and what? How many of y'all wish he'd give somebody better smelling breath, Sam? No, I'm just saying. <laughs> and breath and everything else, okay? So there you guys go. Everything else, whatever comes out, it's from God. I'm just saying. <laughs> everything else. Look at that. We talk about us serving God, but what that really means is when we see him serving us, when we understand it all comes from him, instead of serving him because he needs it, we're serving him because we what? We love him. When Sharla wrote, what a privilege it is to see all the opportunities God's given her to serve God. She wasn't meaning that if she didn't serve God, God would be missing something. <laughs> because if you don't do what God's given you opportunity to do, he'll find somebody else to do it and you miss the blessing. But what it means is that she understands that God has served and is taking care of her, everything. And out of love, she recognizes these opportunities, as do you guys. You recognize the opportunity he gives to you to show that you love him by serving him. So he's trying to explain who this unknown God is. It's not a God that you have to fashion out of steel and whatever, and you have to make sure it doesn't get knocked over and all these different. You know what? This God is taking care of you. From one man, he made all the nations. Uh, Greeks felt superior. Do Greeks still feel superior? You know, you're a little, like, smarter than most of the other people. I mean, well, he just, he just told us right here, Mia. <laughs> he, he just told, you know, people from Boston feel the same way. I'm just joking. But, and New York and wherever. But I'm just saying. But look, look. He said, where did we all come from? One man. No. No, actually... Actually, if you want to get technical, it's Babylon. <laughs> it's like, you know, with Garden of Eden, we all came from the Garden of Eden. We all came from Adam. Science has even proved that right now, you know. He said, y'all want to feel superior from your little race, your little culture, little whatever. You know, I'm kind of partial to the South myself, but, you know, but that's all there. But we all came from one man. He made all the nations. And look at this, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history. And by the way, Greece, right now is not yours. You just lost it to Rome. 
and Rome's going to now lose it to something else and then be reinstituted. You know, so, so what he's saying is God has, he's created all of, the, all of the inhabitants of the world. He marked out their appointed time for success and failure in history. And he marked out their boundaries of their lands. Why did God raise, like Daniel says, raises kingdoms up and brings them down? Why does he even do that with us and makes us go through seasons and, and mountains and valleys? Look at this. God did this so that we, they, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him. And find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God puts you up, lifts you up on a pedestal and gives you success. Why is God doing that in your life, Destiny? Why is he doing it? So that you'll do what? Yeah, look, yeah, look what he says. So that you would seek him. You'd realize that success right now is coming from him. Oh, God, thank you. Let me use this, like Tim Tebow said. Let me use this as a platform for you in this. Not like, okay, world, now it's my time to shine, you know. That's not it. He did it so you would seek him and perhaps reach out for him even more and find him because he's not far from any one of us. Same reason he does it for lost people and for lost civilizations and found civilizations. It's because he's trying to get our attention. And he doesn't always do it through bad things. So he says, man, there's a point in time he did it. I love that, what he says, so we would seek him. What does it mean to seek him? Sure. Fernando, if your wedding ring fell off your hand right now and bounced all around right there, what would you do? You would seek it. Hunt it. Yeah, and everybody else would quit paying attention to me, and they would help you seek it. In other words, everybody's focus would be on what? The ring. The ring. That's what it means to seek him. Your undivided attention is on him. He said that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him. Dude, I, I know I've used this illustration before, but, man, I'm thinking about my old Orlando days. Y'all remember Tarzan? Anybody remember Tarzan? Oh, 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 oh right? Sorry if that wasn't really correct, but that's how we did it, man. And I want you to know, Tarzan was literally Johnny Weissmuller, Tarzan. Y'all remember that one? It was filmed in Orlando up to Ocala. That jungle, you watch it, that's what Orlando used to look. That's how we grew up playing. We had vines to swing on. It was awesome. And they weren't as strong as his vines all the time. We did fall. But literally, man, you guys remember You remember Tarzan? Somebody in Ebley, every Tarzan movie, there was quick what? Quicksand. And somebody would be dum dum fall in quicksand. And I can hear my mom at noon because it would always be on like, well, we're eating lunch. And they would start wiggling and struggling. My mom would go, don't wiggle, don't struggle. No, it's going to make you sink faster. And I don't know if that's really true or not, but I believe in my mom because it's Mother's Day, right? If I ever land in quicksand, I'm not going to wiggle. But they would wiggle, and what would happen? They'd be going down. And they'd be going, help, and, and all this. And Johnny Weisbuehler would hear him, right? And all of a sudden, you'd hear out of the woods, oh, something like that, right? He would jump out of the tree, hanging on to that rope or that vine, and he would swing by, and he'd have his hand down. I even, dude, I, I so have lived this and been him so many times when I was little, right? And, well, even when I'm big, but no, I'm just joking. He's holding on, and he's got a hand down like this, and he swings by the person, and sometimes the person wasn't paying attention. Sometimes the person missed him. They missed the one who was going to rescue him. And then he swung by again, but... <laughs> Most of the time, he swung by, and what did the person in the quicksand, Dustin, you've probably never even seen this show, what can you imagine they did in light of this scripture? Seek him and perhaps reach out. 
They were crying for help, but they had to reach out. And when his hand came by, they grabbed it. And they would be yanked out of it. And miraculously, when they ended up on the next branch with him, they did not have any quicksand on them at all. They were clean. Hollywood was good that way back in those days. But man, look what he said, that you would seek him when he's doing those things in your life. And you would reach out for him and find him. Because where is he? Not far from any one of us. In fact, for those of us who are born again, how far is he? <laughs> yeah, he's right there. And for those of you who don't know him personally, man, and he's speaking to you right now, giving you the desire to surrender yourself to him, he's that close. Is there anybody here that would testify that you've given your life to him and you wished you hadn't? It was the worst thing you ever did. Would you tell the people, if there's somebody here who's thinking about giving their life to Christ, would you tell them right now not to do it? Because it was the most horrible thing you did? No. I don't know anybody to do that. Surrender it to him, especially if he's speaking to you. And so Paul's trying to introduce him to the unknown God. He said, for in him we live and move and have our being. What else do we do, Gary? We live, we move, and we have our being. Is there anything left? We serve, but that's in there too. As some of our own poets said, of your own poets said, and by the way, both of these sayings were things that their own poets and philosophers had said, we are his offspring. Hey, so if he made us, we didn't what? Make him. That's what he goes in the next verse. He said, therefore... Since we are God's offspring, and since you even say that you came from a God, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. If he made us, give him some props, give him some credit, worship him and, you know, in the right way. Don't design a God like yourself in all of this. In the past, look what he said. In the past, before Christ, God did what? Overlook such yeah, he said all of the religion in the past, he said God overlooked such ignorance. Making your own gods, making them like you, worshiping things that were not going to be eternal, or they were just not the right side of eternity. He said in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to do what? Amen. The word repent means to turn. So here's God over here at the ocean. That's God, and we're going the wrong direction. Repent means when we understand where God is, we turn back to him. We're either walking away from God or we're walking towards God. In any phase of your life, whether you're born, or you're, you're born again or you're lost, if you're walking away from him while you're born again, and he's calling you, the Holy Spirit's drawing you, you turn and you come back to him. If you're walking away from him and you've done it for your whole life and he's drawing you for the first time, you turn back to him and you come to him because he loves you more than anyone could ever love you and wants to give you eternal life. So he said, in times past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere. Who? Vicki, who's he commanding? Where? Yeah. <laughs> Is that, can you get a, hey Barb, can you get a more inclusive statement? No. He's calling all people in Indianapolis, Indiana, because they're the worst people in the world. They're lost. No, I'm just joking. You don't live there. You live north of there. All right, but he's calling all people everywhere to do what? To turn back to him. That's what he's calling people to do. For he has set a day. Listen to this. This is God. The God who made the world and made everything in this world, he has set a day. Does anybody know this day? No. He set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. Who's the man he appointed? The one who died on a cross. If you doubt that, look at the next part. And he's given proof of this to everyone 
by raising that man, him, from the dead. So he raised Jesus from the dead to prove that he is going to judge the world one day. He made a way. He made a way for you to be pardoned from your death penalty. Who in the world would not accept a pardon for a death penalty if you really truly understood you were on death row? All expense paid for eternity. You are offered a death, a freedom from your death penalty, a pardon. Who would not accept it? Only people who don't really believe there's a death penalty. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. And this is what their theology couldn't get. This is what they couldn't get in their head. And God evidently wasn't putting in their heart because look what happens. When they, the whole group, heard about this resurrection of the dead. Look what tripped them up. The resurrection of the dead. Because in both the Stoicism and the Epicureanism, did they even have a, a resur an eternal life? No. Did they care? All they cared about was right now. I don't care about later. That doesn't make any sense. What good would a resurrection? And what kind of God would I want to, why would I want to worship a God who died? A God who died and then he had to be frozen again? Why would I want to, you know, why would I want to worship that God? Well, when you find out that you get that same resurrection power, when you find out what God's real plan is, you find out that you've got a death penalty and that's how he pardoned you. Then you want to worship. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, look at this, some of them what? Sneered because, you know what, we're smarter than that. You know what, come on, dude, you're just a junior philosopher. You're a seed picker. You picked a little from here, a little from there. You put it all together. Dude, get out of here, you little seed picker. And then other people, he says, some of them said, we want to hear again on this subject. We want to hear a little bit more about this. At that, Paul left the council. It doesn't say Paul argued with them. It doesn't say Paul then threw a hissy fit and, you know, told them all off. It said Paul left because he saw where the Holy Spirit was working and where the Holy Spirit wasn't working. Anything I can talk you into, the devil can talk you out of. It's got to be the Holy Spirit of God that moves your heart. If you believe, if you have an inkling to believe right now, understand it's the Holy Spirit of God that's giving you that desire. And you will be held accountable as how you act upon that desire. But if you can't believe, that's one of the most, I ain't a real intellectual person. And I get to share the gospel with intellectual people that can outsmart me five different ways, 50 different ways. And what I usually tell them is, look, I'm just telling you this. The only reason I can believe what I believe is because God gave me the a desire and ability to. And you, as smart as you think you are, you can't believe unless God gives you that desire and you accept it. That'll throw an intellectual person into a tizzy when they find out they can't do something, especially when it comes to thinking. But salvation doesn't go from your head to your heart. It goes from your heart to your head. So look what he says. We're almost done. Some people became followers of Paul and believed. Who became followers of Paul and believed? The ones that figured it out or the ones the Holy Spirit spoke to? And they accepted it. The ones that didn't, weren't blinded by their pride. Some of them believed. Was Paul in trouble for the ones that didn't? Was he in trouble with God? Was God going, Paul, you didn't give a good enough example. Paul, you just did a horrible job presenting that. Paul, you're, you need to study the Bible more. Paul, no. Because was God upset with him about the ones that didn't believe? No. Because he shared what God told him to share. And it was God who saved people. It was God who gave them that desire and ability. Not Paul. So among them, and we don't know much about him, this last verse, I think, um, Dionysus, and he was a member of the Areopagus. <laughs> I just said those like I owned them, didn't I? <laughs> but literally, so one of the dudes who was the head philosopher, he got saved. 
And we don't even know there was ever even a church planted here. We don't know what happened here. But we know there's a believer here that wasn't going to spend eternity in hell. They were going to heaven. And also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. We never hear if there's a church planted. We don't really know. But we know some people got saved. And what an awesome thing that is. Salvation goes from your heart to your head. The world says, prove it to me, and I will believe. God says, believe in me, and I'll prove it to you. I want to read you something super quick. I put it on Facebook earlier in the week, and it's really kind of rocked my world. There's an old dude. In fact, he's not alive anymore, but his name's Jay Vernon McGee. Um, so he's really old. Anybody heard of Jay Vernon McGee? I'm going to tell you, a lot of scholars poo-poo Jay Vernon McGee because they look at him as some old country preacher, but he's a guy who embraced his call. The guy came out, you know, in the, in the 60s and early 70s and stuff, and he um, was a guy that was very, very educated. He could have gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with any scholars, whatever. He knew all kinds of stuff. Um, but his calling was to go into Los Angeles, California, at a time when that place was becoming Athens, <laughs> where people, you know, were too smart for the rest of the world. They had it all figured out. And God called this man with his gifts to go in and communicate scripture to those people in a way that they could understand it, remember it, and apply it to their life. And so he made it very simple, very plain. And he's, there's some good stuff if you want to read about him. But he had a quote that I, I again, I put, it on, um, I put it on my Facebook earlier in the week, but I wanted to read you this quote because this whole death penalty thing that I got, I got it from him. I didn't, I didn't make this up. And, and by the way, anything I say, I didn't make up. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. <laughs> it, it's come from somewhere. And, and you're free to use it if you want to. But listen to this, and we're done. He said, our position is something like a man who is in prison being asked whether or not he will accept a pardon. That is the gospel. It's not telling a man that he's on trial. He's already condemned. He is already in prison waiting for execution. But the gospel tells him a pardon is offered to him. The point is, will you accept the pardon? How wonderfully clear that is. The gospel is to save those who are already lost. And that's the good news that we've been left here to share. That anyone we come in contact with who has that death penalty, we can tell them we don't because he gave us a pardon and he wants to use us to help them through Christ have a pardon for theirs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us this word. And um, Father, uh, I pray that like Paul, that... Um, as we look at this world and we see lies all around us, we see idols that are nothing but lies, things people are counting for their secure, and for their security. Do we have doorbells, man, that show people from anywhere they're at that, that somebody's robbing their house? And, and the commercials even tell us we can yell at them through the doorbell and they leave. But, Father, we know better than that. Father, we've got our security in so many different things. And Father, I pray that our security and our satisfaction, our salvation, our sanctification, our glorification, all of that would be found in you. I pray that we would find it there. We would see life truly from your perspective and realize that every single thing going on in our life is by your design for our good and for your glory. And we would never be deceived in thinking anything different. And we would be able to be used as that lighthouse wherever you want to put us for that moment in time. But Father, I pray that we would be able to just communicate this pardon to other people. 
because that's truly what you've left us behind to do. So, Father, I pray you would speak with us. I pray that everyone would know that we have met with you and that we have met with you. I pray if there's someone you haven't met with today, Father, that you'd introduce yourself right now. Father, I pray if there's someone that doesn't know they're your child because they've surrendered themselves to you. They don't know for sure that they're going to heaven when they die because they've never really asked you to forgive them of their sins and apply what Christ did on the cross to their sins and cover them eternally. Father, I pray that today they would do that. They'd surrender all they know about themselves, all they know about you. And today would be the beginning of their new life. And so, Father, can't wait to see what you're going to do. Thank you for what you've already done. And, Father, we love you. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name.